Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, December 16th, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topsher with today's top stories. The UN expels Iran from its women's rights body. Russia and Ukraine exchange dozens of prisoners. Istanbul's mayor, Istanbul's mayor is sentenced to prison for insulting officials. UK nurses hold the biggest strike in NHS history. Biden says the U.S. is all in on Africa's future. The U.S. House approves a Puerto Rico referendum bill. Georgia's Secretary of State calls for an end to runoffs in the state. A U.S. Senate report finds widespread abuse of female inmates by prison workers. A U.S. House report alleges missteps in the intelligence community's handling of COVID. And Scotland proposes allowing children to be elected to parliament. The U.N. expels Iran from their women's rights body. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, The Daily Mail, Newsweek, Reuters, and the U.N. News. Following a U.S. resolution last month, Iran was removed from the U.N. Commission on the Status of Women, or UNCSW, on Wednesday due to its alleged systematic oppression of women and its violent crackdown on street protests in response to the death of Masa Amini. She died in September while in police custody for improperly wearing a hijab. Of the 53 members of the UN Economic and Social Council, 29 voted to expel Iran from the UNCSW, with eight countries voting against and 16 abstaining. Prior to the vote, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield, said Iran's membership put an ugly stain on the commission's credibility, as the country has been experiencing intense protests since September. Among the eight no votes were China, Russia, Bolivia, Kazakhstan, Nicaragua, Nigeria, Oman, and Zimbabwe. Iran, as well as 17 other states and the Palestinians, in a letter to the council, urged members on Monday to vote no to avoid a new trend for expelling sovereign and rightfully elected states from any given body of the international system, if ever perceived as inconvenient. The UNCSW, which was established in 1946, meets annually in March at the UN headquarters in New York and has shaped global standards on gender equality, reportedly being the biggest gathering of gender equality advocates in the world. All right. On this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were the facts on this story. Let's get started with the narrative spins. This is an anti-Iran narrative from Fox News. Removing Iran from the UNCSW is the bare minimum the international community can do to show solidarity with the brave protesters in Iran. As the regime in Tehran butchers demonstrators in the streets, the U.S. has sent a clear message that this repression will not stand. The U.S. still must do more to support young Iranians in their struggle with this tyrannical regime. And the pro-Iran spin comes from the Tehran Times. Yet again, the West demonstrates its double standards regarding Iran and its contempt for cultures different than its own. The decision to remove Iran from the UNCSW was nothing more than a political stunt to fan the flames of sedition with Iran. The U.S. has supported so much violence against the Islamic Republic since its inception in 1979, even providing Iraq with chemical weapons, so this time is no different. 
And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives provided by the Metaculous Prediction Community. This one says there's a 50% chance that Iran will cease to be an Islamic Republic by October of 2031. Yes, so uh, shout out to to the podcast, Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. Um, he for- owes you one, so I think it's okay that we that we plug it here. Oh, yeah, yeah. He, to- he totally owes me one, Conan. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, so yeah, they did a, a special interview with a young Iranian man whose voice they altered and name they altered, obviously, um, and just interviewed him about what's going on. Uh, and he was uh, somewhere around Tehran. Yeah. What'd you think? Uh, well, I would say even though I had a pretty good idea that things were bad in Iran, I was surprised at how bad things are in Iran. That's what I, that, that's my, my big takeaway. Illuminating. So much worse. Uh, and, and, and this, I think that's what Amir from Iran did for me with what's going on over there. Hearing first person from a young person in his young 20s uh, what's going on. And, and these are children that the government is killing. Um, yeah, it, it just is. Yeah, it's pretty bad. One thing I want, so you're a health professional. Let me draw an analogy here. You're a, a health professional. You help people get healthier, right? Is that true. is that true? True. Uh, so I'm going to draw an analogy here and you still see if you follow what I'm saying. Okay. So if someone who's pretty in shape, pretty with it, has their health in order, comes to you, that's great. And you can help them. But if someone who is not in shape or has an injury or really needs help comes to you, that's even better in a way, right? Yes, I think so, because it is bringing someone who's not really functioning well onto the playing field, right? So with that being said, is expelling Iran who needs this women's rights body more than anywhere else? Is that a good idea? Is this cutting off our nose to spite our face? Is this a punishment? Who is this helping or hurting? What do you, what, how do you, what do you think about that? Excellent question. You know, is expelling them going to help the women of Iran? How is what we're doing um, as a privileged country helping these young women live a better life? Right. Or, and there's an argument to be made that is Iran making such a mockery of this council that they should, okay, we'll just get out of here. You know, if you had someone come in and they're not doing anything that you say and they're eating McDonald's and they're doing whatever, like, I guess you should stop coming at some point, right? Right. Well, then we say... Who do we need to turn you? Because as a health professional, you don't just stick them in the mud, right? You say, I'm going to refer you to this person who I think can actually help you. And then, yeah, and then it's it's for them, right? How do you do that to another country? Let's ask a diplomat. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. And now for our daily update on the conflict in the Ukraine as we reach day 295 in the fighting as dozens are exchanged in a Russia-Ukraine prison swap. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Donetsk News Agency, Ukraine Forum, MSN, Pravda, TASS, and Al Jazeera. Dozens of people, including a U.S. citizen, were exchanged in the latest prison swap between Russia and Ukraine earlier in the week. It was revealed late on Wednesday. Andrei Yermak, the head of Ukraine's presidential office, said the exchange included 64 Ukrainian soldiers and a U.S. national identified as Sudi Merkezi, a Rwanda native and U.S. Air Force veteran who went to Ukraine in 2018. The bodies of four Ukrainians were also repatriated, Yermak said. 
Daria Morozova, a pro-Russia official from the Donetsk People's Republic, or DPR, said 135 of its fighters were freed from Ukrainian captivity, stating that 104 had returned home while the other 31 were receiving medical treatment in the DPR and other regions of Russia. Meanwhile, citing an intelligence official, Ukrainian media revealed that an unnamed priest from the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Moscow Patriarchate was also exchanged. In recent weeks, the Security Service of Ukraine, or SSU, have carried out a number of raids and arrests in Moscow-linked churches in the country, accusing them of collaborating with Russian forces during the invasion. Meanwhile, EU diplomats have told Reuters that they've so far failed to reach consensus on a potential ninth package of sanctions against Russia, with disagreements stemming from whether the EU should make it easier for Russian fertilizer exports to pass through European ports. Russia has repeatedly said that the easing of sanctions on Russian fertilizer exports is required for its continued participation in the Black Sea grain deal, as had been originally agreed. On the ground, with no let-up in fighting despite the winter conditions, Ukrainian officials said nine civilians were killed and 21 were injured in Russian attacks over the past day. They reported that two civilians were killed and four were injured in Donetsk, and two were killed and one was injured in Zaporizhia, while five people were killed and 13 were injured in Kherson. Two people were reportedly injured in Nipopetrovsk and one civilian injured in Kharkiv. Meanwhile, DPR officials said five civilians were killed and 14 were injured in Ukrainian attacks on Donetsk over the same time period. Ukraine also launched another drone attack in Russian territory late on Wednesday, striking an airbase in the border region of Kursk. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on today's report. We've got two narrative spins, and we'll start with a pro-establishment narrative from the PBS NewsHour. This invasion is an egregious violation of the international law. Putin's ultimate aim is to restore the Soviet empire, even if it takes massive bloodshed and false pretexts, such as calling the 2014 Ukrainian revolution after an election a coup. This unprovoked attack is the latest chapter in Putin's Orwellian attempt to rewrite history. And we have a pro-Russia narrative from the National Security Archive. NATO and the U.S. have ignored Russia's security concerns by breaking its promise not to expand eastward in return for German reunification. These concerns are legitimate, and taking them seriously would have avoided the Ukraine tragedy. And there's a nerd narrative as well from the Metaculous Prediction community says there's a 1% chance that there will be a bilateral ceasefire or peace agreement in the Russo-Ukrainian conflict before 2023. The mayor of Istanbul is sentenced for insulting officials. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, The Guardian, The New York Times, Reuters, Hurriyet Daily News, and The Washington Post. A Turkish court on Wednesday handed a more than two-and-a-half-year jail sentence and a political ban to the mayor of Istanbul and key opposition politician Ekrem Imamoglu on charges of insulting members of the Supreme Electoral Council. The lawsuit against him was prompted by a 2019 comment by Imamoglu to celebrate his electoral victory. He stated in a press release that, the ones who canceled the March 31st election are fools, referring to an annulled election he had also won. Imamolu was sentenced to two years and seven months in prison. He hasn't been arrested and his party will appeal per Turkish law. He wouldn't be incarcerated, but would be barred from office and political activity during this time. 
This conviction comes six months before presidential and parliamentary elections in Turkey, with Imamoglu having been mentioned as a possible leading challenger to run against President Erdogan. On Thursday, the six-party opposition National Alliance held a massive rally in Istanbul to support Imamoglu, criticizing the decision and expressing that the opposition coalition will gather strength. Recent polls have shown that Imamoglu is among a limited group of opposition politicians who could conceivably defeat incumbent Erdogan in June's presidential election, as Turkey reels from economic stress. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. We have an establishment critical narrative here from DW. This ruling demonstrates Erdogan's efforts to use the court to rid himself of yet another possible contender in the upcoming presidential election. His regime has long used defamation and insulting charges to suppress dissent, with thousands in Turkey convicted on these charges since Erdogan took power in 2014. And the Daily Sabah has provided a pro-establishment narrative. The opposition's allegation that the ruling against Imamoglu was politically motivated are absurd. No person, authority, or body can interfere in the exercise of judicial power in Turkey. This is not a final decision, and the appeals process will continue with due process. I think that would be a really good name of like a, of like a rap group or like the next Rage Against the Machine. Listen for it. The Opposition Politicians. Mm, yeah? I thought you were going to say the appeals process, and I was going <laughs> to disagree with you. <laughs> yes, uh, you should have. Yes. Nurses hold the biggest strike in NHS history. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, CNN, Sky News, Daily Mail, and The Times. Thousands of UK National Health Service, or NHS, nurses in England, Wales, and Northern Ireland on Thursday held the first of two day-long walkouts, with the Royal College of Nursing, or RCN, demanding a 19% pay raise and for the record number of staff vacancies to be filled. Calls for a 19% pay bump, 5% above retail inflation. Come after, when adjusted for inflation, nurses' pay dropped 1.2% every year between 2010 and 2017, according to the Health Foundation charity. For the first three of those years, their pay was frozen. Last year, their pay was increased 3%, though this is well below inflation. Up to 100,000 nurses are estimated to join the strikes, each day of which will last for 12 hours. The RCN said the areas that will be exempt from the strike action include chemotherapy, dialysis, pediatric accident and emergency, intensive care and high dependency, and neonatal and pediatric intensive care. The services likely to be most impacted include routine operations such as knee and hip replacements, with Health Minister Maria Caulfield saying roughly 70,000 procedures in England will be delayed and thousands more in Northern Ireland and Wales. While Secretary of Health Steve Barclay claims the pay rise is not affordable, he says he's willing to discuss a wide range of issues outside of pay. Nevertheless, the strikes may worsen. Ambulance workers are set to strike next week, and the nurse union is mandating strikes through May. Junior doctors are also likely to join by February. Another union, the GMB in Scotland, also voted Wednesday to reject an improved NHS pay deal from the Scottish government. The next nurse walkout is scheduled for December 20th. Thank you, Scott, for laying out the facts on that story. We'll start our spins with a right narrative from The Telegraph. 
This is highly reminiscent of the strikes of 1979, which saw much of the country brought to a standstill. The only difference is Margaret Thatcher was elected that year to quash the union dominance and restore order. Though the pay concerns of nurses are understandable, a minimum level of service must be maintained when it comes to essential sectors. Sunak needs to put his foot down. And the left narrative comes from The Guardian. If Sunak sees himself as the successor to Margaret Thatcher, he should be reminded that she agreed to a 25% pay raise with trade unions in 1979. While private sector pay has grown 7% annually, public sector workers like nurses have received a dismal 2% average, dangerously below the inflation rate. Thatcher was a realist who understood the impact the public sector has on the wider economy, and Sunak should realize the same. President Biden says the U.S. is all in on Africa's future. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Bloomberg, the White House, Al Arabia, CNN, and Radio Free International. U.S. President Biden on Wednesday told the 49 African leaders attending the U.S. Africa Leaders Summit in Washington that the United States is all in on Africa's future. Biden pledged over $15 billion in new commitments and deals with African nations on projects including in the sectors of sustainable energy, connectivity, finance, health, and infrastructure. Washington also agreed to a Memorandum of Understanding with the African Continental Free Trade Area Secretariat. When fully implemented, the African Continental Free Trade Area will reportedly create a 3.4 trillion continent-wide market. Earlier this week, White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan also signaled that the Biden administration was set to provide $55 billion in economic, health, and security funding over the next three years to support Africa in achieving its developmental goals in line with the African Union's Agenda 2063. The three-day summit, the second such event since 2014, opened Tuesday and reportedly aims to revitalize Washington's engagement with Africa amid competitors like China and Russia increasing their influence on the continent. In recent years, the EU and Turkey have also held their own respective African summits. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin on Tuesday also cautioned Africa leaders at a panel against alleged destabilizing activities by China and Russia in Africa, alleging Beijing's lack of transparency and Moscow's continued trade in cheap weapons and deployment of, and deployment of mercenaries. Thanks for those facts. We have an establishment critical narrative from Global Times. Though Washington pretends that it wants to close the growing trust gap between the U.S. and Africa, the Biden administration still sees Africa merely as a pawn in its strategic goal of competing with China and Russia. However, African leaders have long known that the U.S. isn't concerned with cooperation for mutual benefit. Africa is unlikely to benefit from the summit in a meaningful way. The pro-establishment narrative is written by Quartz. Biden's influence on the U.S.-Africa summit includes vital cooperation on economics, health, sustainability, and governance. The U.S. is interconnected to all African nations, and this forum is an opportunity to enhance a deep partnership for years to come. The U.S. House of Representatives approves a Puerto Rico referendum bill. Here are the facts as agreed upon by by Voice of America, Fox News, Reuters, New York Daily, Associated Press, 
and the Hill. On Thursday, the U.S. House voted 233 to 191 to approve a bill that will allow Puerto Rico, a U.S. territory, to hold its first-ever binding referendum to determine the governmental status of the island. The bill gives Puerto Ricans three options for consideration, statehood, independence, or independence with free association with the U.S. Representative Nadia Velasquez, Democrat of New York, and resident commissioner Jennifer Gonzalez-Colón, Republican of Puerto Rico, struck a deal to bring the bill to a full House vote with outgoing majority leader Steny Hoyer, Democrat of Maryland, leading the way in negotiations. The bill now moves to the divided Senate, where it will need 60 votes and President Biden's signature to take effect. With a full schedule and Congress set to reconvene with a Republican-controlled House on January 3rd, many speculate the chance of this bill passing are slim. Meanwhile, Republicans allege that Democrats are trying to rush the legislation in the final days of the current Democrat-controlled Congress, arguing that the bill would fund Puerto Rico's statehood or sovereignty without Puerto Ricans paying taxes. Puerto Rico, which has a population of approximately 3.3 million people, became a U.S. territory in 1898. There have been six referendums on the island's status since the 1960s, but they were invalid as only Congress can grant statehood. Thank you, Scott, for the facts. The New Republic has written the democratic narrative. Puerto Ricans must be given the right to determine their future. The island has been under U.S. colonial rule for over 100 years, stuck in limbo with neither independence nor statehood. And it's time this changes. While this bill is a step in the right direction, it likely won't be the deciding factor in this debate, which is why the U.S. must commit to a status change one way or another. USSA News brings us the Republican narrative. Thankfully, this bill has little to no chance of passing in the Senate, but it's still important to note the true sentiment behind the push to get it through Congress. Under the guise of acting in Puerto Ricans' best interests, the power-hungry Democrats are looking to buy favor and are willing to go as far as creating an entirely new voting bloc to do so. And there's a nerd narrative saying there's a 39% chance that Puerto Rico will become a U.S. state by 2035. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Georgia Secretary of State calls for an end to runoffs. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, The National Review, CNN, and WTOC 11 Savannah. Georgia Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger called for the state's legislature to end election runoffs, noting that Georgia is one of the last states that holds a general election runoff. This comes a week after the state's Senate runoff, which saw Senator Raphael Warnock secure re-election. Georgia has held three hotly contested runoffs in the past two years that garnered national attention. Louisiana is the only other state with a general election runoff. Other states, except Maine and Alaska, which feature ranked choice voting, allow a winner to prevail with just a plurality of the vote. A law implemented two years ago shortened the time between the general election and runoff to four weeks, but Raffensperger says that interferes with workers' holiday time and burdens counties who already struggle to complete all election-related deadlines. There are several alternatives to the runoff system, including ranked choice voting, lowering the threshold to trigger a runoff from a majority to a plurality, and eliminating ballot access to third-party candidates. The Republican-controlled Georgia General Assembly convenes in January, which is when it will reportedly discuss its options. 
Thanks for those facts, Melissa. We have two diametrically opposed political narratives on this one. The Republican narrative comes from Fox News. The runoffs are a Democratic relic that dates back to when Representative Denmark Groover tried to rig the system after he lost his reelection race. There's no reason why the candidate who gets the most votes can't be declared the winner in a general election without putting the state's election workers through the grind of managing a runoff, especially when it falls just after Thanksgiving. And the Democratic narrative is provided by MSNBC. Groover was a Democrat from a different time, and he blamed black voters for his loss. He admitted he invented the runoff system to suppress the black vote, so there's no question Georgia should get rid of it. But rather than focusing on disrupted holiday times, ironically, the result of a Republican law, there should be collective recognition of how this system hurts marginalized communities. Are both narratives saying we should get rid of the runoffs? They are. That's what it, they are. They're saying so what are they it's, disagreeing your, on it's here? your fault. But we should oh. get rid of it. Oh, okay. Gotcha. So the distri- discrepancy is whose fault this is. Right. That's okay. that's what I've learned about politics is it's better if you look backwards and point blame. Hmm. That's the way we get things done. Marriage counseling, too. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. You and I are in, a, a, are in fine, healthy relationships, I, I might add. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. According to a U.S. Senate report, female inmates are sexually abused by prison workers. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Washington Post, Daily Wire, NPR Online News, and The New York Times. A report released Tuesday by the Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations found that federal female prison inmates nationwide have been subjected to sexual abuse by prison guards and other officials for nearly a decade. According to the report, which interviewed officials from the Federal Bureau of Prisons, alleged victims, and whistleblowers, prison workers sexually abused women in 19 of the 29 women's federal prisons. It added that the seriously flawed investigative procedures of the Bureau's Office of Internal Affairs led to a backlog of 8,000 cases, with at least hundreds involving sexual abuse. Several women testified about the alleged abuse on Tuesday, with one witness detailing the alleged abuse carried out by a captain at the federal prison in Alderson, West Virginia, who has since been convicted of assaulting her and others. Other high-level perpetrators, including the warden and chaplain of a California prison, were found to have abused inmates for years. The report claims the Bureau only began to institute agency-wide changes after the California scandal came to light. In response, some within the Department of Justice have reportedly suggested releasing victims early, with Deputy Attorney General Lisa O. Monaco pushing the Bureau to compile a list of inmates who could be freed under the Compassionate Release Program. Thank you, Scott, for laying out the facts on this somber story. Narrative A is brought to us by the New York Times. Though this report may be news to the public, The epidemic of sexual abuse in female prisons has been a well-known secret within the government for a long time. Authorities at the DOJ and other agencies ignored such horrific acts for years, so it's only right that these victims be released early. Narrative B comes from MapSexOffenders.com. While atonement and accountability are undoubtedly needed, the primary response to this horrific phenomenon should be how to prevent it from happening in the first place. 
The good thing is we already know the cause, the imbalance of power between male guards and female inmates. Now there must be a concerted effort to be proactive rather than reactive. A U.S. House report alleges COVID intelligence missteps. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Wall Street Journal, Politico, NBC, and Foreign Policy. A newly declassified report by Democrats on the House Intelligence Committee alleges that the U.S. intelligence community missed the opportunity to better understand COVID by not spying on Chinese health professionals more quickly when it knew the PRC was reportedly hiding valuable information. Other findings from the report suggested that intelligence agencies haven't made changes to their protocols regarding advanced warnings of new global health crises, including novel diseases. The CIA and other spy agencies were partially absolved by the report because they were able to raise the warning of a looming pandemic before the World Health Organization made that declaration about COVID on March 11, 2020. The report also pushes back against claims from then-President Trump that the intelligence community was reporting on the outbreak as non-threatening or matter-of-fact. The difference between what intelligence was reporting and what Trump was saying was striking, according to the report. Republicans on the committee released a separate report that focused on COVID's origins and how the intelligence community investigated them concluding that the intelligence community didn't look closely enough at a possible link between the virus and potential biological weapons research by China. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. MSNBC brings us the Democratic narrative. Trump's deliberate efforts to undermine the U.S. response to COVID were already part of the public record, but these reports are vital for stressing how badly he bungled the pandemic. The Trump administration mischaracterized pandemic intelligence for political reasons and tried to pressure health officials into authorizing discredited treatments. These findings are extremely concerning. The Republican narrative is written by The Federalist. The Democrats' report is Monday morning quarterbacking. But what's important now is what committee Republicans have discovered about obstruction from U.S. intelligence agencies regarding COVID origins. If we're going to prevent another pandemic and possibly hold someone accountable for the COVID outbreak, we can't rule out the lab leak theory, which is the real bombshell that needs scrutiny here. And we have another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says there's a 50% chance that COVID-19 will be eradicated by June of 2082, according to the Metaculus prediction community. And our final story comes from the UK as the SNP proposes lowering the Parliament candidacy age to 16. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Telegraph, The National, the official website of Scotland, and the Merco Press. On Wednesday, the devolved Scottish government published proposals for the minimum age of candidates for Holyrood elections to be cut from 18 to 16, which would reportedly be the youngest minimum age for a national political candidate worldwide. Scotland lowered the voting age ahead of the 2014 independence referendum. This then carried over to the 2016 Holyrood election, but the age for candidacy remained 18. The consultation document acknowledged that there would be challenges with 16- and 17-year-olds running in Holyrood elections, such as well-being concerns, including exposure to hate speech, as well as potential implications to the candidate's education. The document includes a series of other electoral reforms, such as extending candidacy rights to foreign nationals with the right to vote. 
According to polls conducted since the UK Supreme Court rejected Scotland's right for a second independence referendum without needing the consent of Westminster in November, on average, 72% of those aged 16 to 24 stated they would vote to leave the UK. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on our last story today. The left narrative comes from The Courier. Despite concerns, the success of the Scottish Youth Parliament is proof that a significant number of young people are already engaged in politics. There's no reason to see a 16- or 17-year-old elected as anything but a positive force, with the voices of the future being the ones that truly matter. And The Spectator brings us the right narrative. With Scottish independence lagging, Nicola Sturgeon's desperate attempt to retain the initiative is to turn 16-year-olds into members of the Scottish Parliament. Rather than attempting to implement meaningful policy, Sturgeon's Scottish National Party is solely driven by gaining independence. It will go so far as to unleash the pressure of the debate's toxicity onto adolescents. You would hope that uh, part of the effect of this, if it were to happen, were that people would stop the hate speech in Parliament, right? We might yeah. we might behave a little better in front of our children. <laughs> Why is there so much hate speech going on? Exactly. Like, what is happening? <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, December 16th, 2022. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Thank you.